If you're visiting with us this morning, you've caught us in the middle of uh, a a sermon series that we've called 117, Learn to Do Justice. Uh, If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hands. There are a couple folks coming down the aisles with copies. We'd be happy to supply you one. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we want that to be our gift to you. So please, if you don't have your own Bible, we want that to be your Bible. Write your name in it, take it home, read it, uh, let it speak to you, and uh, put it into practice and believe what it, what it teaches there. But we're in this series uh, that we've called 117, Learn to Do Justice, and we've come to the fifth sermon, I think, in this series. And let me just remind you or introduce you, if you're coming for the first time, to why we're doing the series. We live in a world where the word justice gets used for almost everything, including things that actually are not justice as the Bible defines it. And so we're working our way through this in order to have a biblical definition of of justice. What does God mean when God says, do justice? And we want to not only know that intellectually, but we want to, having come to see God's teaching in the Word, we want to apply it to our lives. So this is something when the Bible says do, where we're actually meant to what? Do. And so we want to apply this idea into our Christian witness. And number three, of course, if the Bible's definition isn't always the world's definition, if the Bible has a a more complete and, and divinely inspired definition, we want that to be our framework. We want what the Bible to teach, to give us the guardrails and to give us the content and the pathway toward justice. And looking at the Bible as our plumb line, we're praying that this would be a unifying time of study for us as God's people. That we would be rallying not to a particular justice issue per se, or not to a particular philosophical worldview per se, but we would be rallying to Jesus and rallying to the Bible. And as we do that, we'll be rallying to each other. Right? And so we want to see this unify us by God's grace. Now let me tell you what we've talked about so far in the four previous sermons. In the first sermon, we simply tried to make the argument that the blessings of pursuing justice outweigh the risks and the challenges of not. And we have to make that argument because we live in a world, particularly in a sort of evangelical world, a Bible-believing, gospel-believing part of the church world, that is really kind of allergic to the idea of justice and views it with suspicion. But that's not the Bible's view. The second thing we try to argue is that our pursuit of justice then must be God-centered. We pursue justice because that's what God is doing in the world. That's what he's like. He's just and he always does right. And he calls his people then to be like him in the pursuit of justice. And then we try to argue number three, again, as I've already alluded to, that our definition, what we mean by justice, actually must be plumbed from the Bible. It is doing the right thing for the right persons, at the right time, to the right extent, in the right right way. That there are just outcomes as well as a just procedure, a just process for getting there. And then last week we tried to make the case that our pursuit of justice really is just recognizing that we and everyone we have ever known or seen is remarkably made in the image and likeness of God and ought to be treated as such. If we recognize that our neighbor bears the image and likeness of God, and we recognize if we're Christians in particular, that we are being renewed in the image and likeness of of God, there's a therefore that follows that. Therefore, we ought to treat them as people bearing that image, bearing that likeness, with that dignity, 
that we ourselves would want to be treated with in that way. Now, these first five or six sermons are really meant to be sort of theological floorboards. We'll come to some topics in the next four or five sermons. And what I've been trying to show is that biblical justice is tied really to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not a gospel of justice. This is a gospel with justice. It is, it is a gospel that produces not just our conversion, but produces a new way of life that includes being righteous and upright and doing equity and fairness in the world. And if that's what the gospel is producing, then we shouldn't be surprised that it should flow out of our lives. It should flow out of the church and into the world. Again, it seems to me that in many Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches, this isn't well understood. There's an allergy to this idea, to this connection. There's a suspicion that attaches things like liberalism or losing the gospel or not even being true Christians to the mere mention of justice. We've got to correct for that. The Bible teaches us what God means by it, and we ought to be shy about that. So I pray and aim that this sermon would kind of explode that myth in our own thinking and witness. If you're a note-taking type, we're going to ask and answer three questions with God's help. Number one, first question is, what is the gospel then? What is the gospel? Let's not assume the main thing, right? Number two, how is justice related to the gospel? What's the relationship? What's the connection between what we're talking about, pursuing biblical justice, and this gospel that we cherish? And number three, what does this mean for us? How does it come home? How does it apply? How do we think through the application of all of these things? And so let's ask God for for help in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we do need your help to hear your word, to not be distracted, to not fall into various temptations and errors. We do need your help, Holy Spirit, to see your word bear fruit in our lives. So we pray right now, supernaturally, speak to us by your spirit through your word. Give us understanding. At places, change our minds. At other places, affirm our thinking and our feeling. And give us, O Lord, we pray, beginnings of clear direction for doing what your word calls us to do. Speak to us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start with a a basic question, which is really kind of deceptive. When we call it basic, it's not the kind of thing that you start with and then you leave and don't look back to. It's the kind of basic that is fundamental, that is integral, that, that without this thing, it changes the whole nature of things. So without the gospel, we're not a church. Without the gospel, we're not Christians. Uh, without the gospel sort of working in our lives continually, we won't grow in sanctification the way we're meant to. So the question is, what, what is the gospel? Where well, the gospel is a word that literally means news. It means good news. And like all news stories, um, the gospel has certain facts. So this is a message, this is a news story about facts surrounding what God has done to rescue sinners from his judgment. First fact is this, that God loves us. 
Now, we should never leave that fact, that God loves us. I mean you. I mean me. Not us abstractly, but us personally. And God has showed his love in this, that he has sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to prove his love. And he's coming to the world to prove his love by doing two things for us. By number one, becoming our righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus obeyed God perfectly. Everything that God demands of us, Jesus has satisfied in his obedience to God. We failed at that, to obey God perfectly. But number two, it means that Jesus has also satisfied God's wrath against us because of our sin. He did that when he died on the cross for us. That's a historical fact. The Son of God came into the world and died on a Roman cross as punishment, not for being a rebel against Rome, but as punishment for us because we were rebels against God. And all of God's anger, all of God's righteous, holy indignation toward us was poured out on Jesus in our place on the cross. He suffered and died for us. Don't let that get by you. It was for you personally that Jesus died and suffered the judgment of God. And three days later, God raised him from the grave. It's what we'll celebrate next Sunday at Easter. We'll celebrate the the resurrection of our Lord. He, He died, but he rose. And when he rose, God was demonstrating that he had accepted his son's sacrifice on our behalf. And God was demonstrating that Jesus had defeated hell and the grave and defeated death itself so that everyone who believes in him would live eternally. Those are the facts of the gospel. Those are the facts that have changed the world. Those are the facts that have brought into existence the Christian church. You realize that the fact that you see a church on almost every corner of our neighborhood is living brick and mortar witness and living community witness that these facts are true. These things happened. But now this news isn't like the kind of news you watch on your favorite television station. You know, you watch the news whether it's the 30-minute local news or whether it's the national news that you prefer. And when the news goes off, what do you do? Well, you turn the TV off or you flip to the next channel, don't you? You don't get up saying, what must I do? You, You don't anticipate that there's any response that's demanded of you. That's not true with this news, with the gospel. Because God has done these things in the world for us, now God has even more demand upon our lives. And there are two things that he calls us to do in response to this good news. Number one is to repent, to change your mind, to change your actions, to change your directions, to turn around. We, we had been thinking, hadn't we, that life was about doing what we want to do, becoming who we want to become making our own way in the world. And and we had been thinking, hadn't we, that there might be some things we do that other people don't like and some things to do maybe we don't even like. There might even be some things that we do that we would consider sin, but we enjoy them and we were probably thinking if it ain't hurting anybody else, it's okay. 
until we meet a holy God. And God says, actually, your life is not your own. I made you, therefore I own you. And you were made for me, not for yourself. And you were made to serve me and not yourself. And then we come to discover in the Bible that one of the definitions of sins is literally going your own way. The whole way in which we had been thinking about life and living is literally sinful insofar as we were going our own way apart from God. And so God meets us and he says to us, listen, you're going the wrong way. You need to turn around. Don't go your own way where there's destruction. Take the narrow path through Christ where there's life. And so we're meant to do this turning, to turn in our thinking, turn in our feeling, turn in our action away from sin back to God through Christ. And then we're number two, demanded to believe in Jesus, to accept him for who he is, God's only son, who, as we said in the facts of the gospel, came into the world to demonstrate God's love for us by dying in our place and by obeying God in our place. And, and he came in the world, he announced that he is Lord. Of all the titles that God could have chosen, he chose that one to make it really clear that he's the ruler and not ourselves. And it is to turn to Jesus and accept him as the one who paid the penalty for your sins personally on the cross and the one who brings you back to God through faith in him. It is to turn to that Jesus and believe in that Jesus that is required of everyone everywhere. That includes everyone in this room this morning. And then the gospel just keeps getting better. They are the promises of God. That everyone who follows Jesus will be forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future, will be declared righteous by this holy God because of what Jesus has done and because of Jesus' righteousness, and will be reconciled to God. Our warfare with God, our going our own way will end, and we will be given peace with God, and we will walk together with God. That's a promise from God, and, and we'll receive God himself. He will come and live with us. Indeed, live in us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll never be separated from his love, so much so that God is preparing for us a kingdom that will not end, in which we will see God face to face and know the joy of his salvation. And beloved, that is a very, very partial list of the promises and the blessings we have in Christ. That's the gospel. And that's what we're meant to believe and embrace as our own. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, that's what we want to invite you into, this news story that is about God loving you and saving you from hell and God bringing you into the promises of a relationship with him. And if you'd like to know more about what that means, we would like nothing more than to explain it to you and pray with you and share more with you. Stick around after the service. See any one of the pastors, any one of the persons you saw up front this morning. Talk with the Christian friend who brought you. But don't leave today without receiving this free offer of eternal life from this loving God. That's the gospel. That's the main thing. That's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian church, is at the heart of Christian mission in the world. It's the beginning and the end of the Christian life. This is the everything. But now from this gospel, 
there are things that we need to understand about justice. And that brings us to our second question. How is justice related to the gospel? And I'm going to give you that answer in two parts. I want to tell you how it's not related to the gospel and how it is related to the gospel. And I want you to chase the scriptures with me on this, on these two points. Number one, justice is not the root of the gospel or the root of our salvation. We can read a text like our theme text, Isaiah 1 verse 17, where Isaiah says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, um, bring justice to the, uh, to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. We can read a text like that and we can hear the, the command and we can hear the emphasis to do those things and we can walk away mistakenly thinking it's the doing of those things that makes us right with God. Well, that's not true, beloved. Galatians 2 verses 15 and 16 explains this very clearly for us. There Paul, writing, says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's popular among some professing Christians who, who I, don't, I don't mean this um, pejoratively, but it, it, it's, it's popular among some professing Christians who don't yet know how their Bibles fit together as one story to think that in the Old Testament, people were saved by basically obeying the commands of God. And in the New Testament, there's a different way of being saved, and that's by believing in Jesus. That's false, beloved. There's only ever been one way to be justified before God, to be righteous before God. And that's what Paul is talking about in these two verses. And he's talking about as himself, as a Jewish person in that old covenant with God. He says, listen, even as Jewish believers, we have come to understand that we are not justified by works of the law. So whether we're in the Old Testament as Jewish believers or whether we're in the New Testament in the Christian church, there's only one way, ever been one way to be righteous with God. And Paul says here, it is not by works of the law like doing justice, but through faith in Jesus Christ. They look forward with faith to Christ's coming. We look backwards with faith to Christ finishing the mission. But it's all by faith, not by works. Amen. Notice the last part of verse 16. By works of the law, no one will be justified. We cannot obey our way to heaven. We just can't. Galatians 3, 10 to 14 tells us why obedience to the law will not work to save us from hell. Paul writes there, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see what Paul is arguing there. Relying on the law in order to be righteous before God leads us to the curse of the law, the judgment of the law. He's not talking there about sort of voodoo and superstition. He's talking there about God's active judgment and punishment against us. And that's true of everyone who tries to get to God by obeying the law. The person ends up cursed or judged. And here's why. Paul says here, if you try to keep one part of the law, guess how much you got to keep? All of it. All of it. I love it when he says, verse, 30, verse 11, he says, so it's evident then. <laughs> it should be clear. If the expectation is that you keep all of the law perfectly all the time, it is evident. It is abundantly clear that nobody's going to be justified that way. Nobody's going to be righteous with God by trying to keep everything written in the book of the law. We can't do it. And so a natural question arises at this point for many people. Well, then, why did God give the law? What's all that about? Commanding all these things, if doing all these things, we, we can't do them and they don't get us to heaven. Well, Galatians 3, 24 and 25 answers that question. Look there, 24 to 26. Paul explains. So then the law was given, was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Paul is using there the, the word picture of uh, maybe an ancient wealthy family. There weren't public schools and public education. Children were taught by tutors, by schoolmasters, by guardians. And that guardian's job was to teach that child from, from childhood all the way to adulthood until the time that they would become king or until the time they would inherit the family's estate. He was to teach and to train them for that time when they would walk in all the blessings of their inheritance. And Paul says the law is like that. It's like a schoolmaster. It is meant to teach us and instruct us and to guard us and to guide us until the time of Jesus. When we would see how it is all of the promised blessings of God could actually be ours, not through the tutor, but through the son, through Christ. The law is like a chaperone. It's just simply watching over us, babysitting, until we're full grown through faith in Christ. The law is like a parent that tells their child to do certain things that reflect well on the parent. Y'all ever done that? You know, going over to a friend's house. Now, when you get over to so-and-so house, you act like you got some sense. You remember who you are and whose you are, huh? Anybody know? Don't wear out your welcome. Y'all heard all those things, right? You, you, you mind, you, see, we use words like mind, right? You mind, miss so-and-so. You know, you obey them, right? But now, however many instructions we give the child that reflect well on us, those instructions and obeying those instructions don't make them us, right? They're still their own person. They ain't going to obey mom and dad all day long and never become mom and dad. This is why uh, parents, your goal in parenting is not to raise many yous. They're going to become their own persons. 
And they will reflect some of those things, but they won't reflect you and me perfectly. Same it is with God and his law. We will reflect in some measure the things that he requires of us in the law, but by obeying the law, we never become God. We never reach that perfection. So to put it simply, stop trying to be good enough to earn God's approval. It's not even what he's asking you to do. We cannot be good enough. And what the law commands is good, but the people the law is commanding are not. And so we need one better than the law to rescue us. We need Christ. So the root of the gospel is not doing justice. And just one word of further application here. We want to be on guard against that legalism that turns the good works of justice into the way or the requirement of salvation. We don't want this to become the basis on which we think we are right with God. It is not. We're justified by faith alone in Christ. So now, justice is not the root of the gospel. Justice is then the fruit of the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. We'll spend the rest of our time here in this text. Paul writes there in these words, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Real quickly, beloved, I I need you guys to do something for me. Remind me after the sermon to call on Julian. I almost forgot. That's your good work from this sermon. It's to remind me to call on Julian. Okay, so the Lord gives you things while you're preaching sometimes and you you almost forget. Okay, so, so back to the text. Notice three things about this section in Titus 2. First, it is the grace of God that brings salvation. You see that there in verse 11? Not the works of men, the grace of God. So at the root of the gospel tree is God's grace. What is grace and what is salvation? Well, grace is, as you know, a kindness and favor from God that we don't deserve. That's God being good to us anyway. God being nice to us anyway, despite us, despite ourselves. And what is salvation? Well, it's being rescued from God's wrath in hell for God's love in heaven. Salvation is God snatching us from the fire and bringing us into his home. It is him delivering us from the judgment we deserve and giving to us the the riches of his love, which which we don't deserve. So that grace that brings salvation for all people, notice now, it appeared. You could see it. When? When Christ came into the world. Grace is ultimately embodied in Jesus. If anyone is ever going to be rescued from God's wrath in hell, for God's love in heaven, it would be only by getting God's undeserved kindness through Jesus. That's the root of the gospel tree. Now, secondly, notice the grace of God that brings salvation. Notice, secondly, it also trains us in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
So grace doesn't just simply get us out of hell. It also gets Jesus into us. It teaches us to say two things fundamentally. It teaches us two new vocabulary words. No and yes. No to ungodliness and worldly passions. And yes to self-controlled uprightness and godliness in this present evil age. Now that's striking. This evil age that, that Paul refers to there, Jesus also talks about as a wicked and adulterous generation. It's an age marked by sin, marked by rebellion, marked by adultery toward God, turning away from the one who loves us to go after another that is not God. It's right in the darkness that grace shines brightly. It's right in the darkness that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and yes to self-control and uprightness and uh, godliness. It's like children who first begin to talk. One of the first words that children learn after dada is no. Don't care what you ask the child, like no. You say, you know, baby can't, can't, no. And you wonder if the child's ever going to learn another word besides no. Right? Everything is no. Now, I was thinking about this. This is really indicative of God's genius. If you want somebody to get a concept clear that would be for their protection and their blessing, one of the first concepts you want to get clear is no. To be able to say no to the wrong things. To be able to say no to the wrong relationships. To be able to mark yourself off from things that would harm you so that you would be protected. It's a marvelous evidence of God's wisdom that that children seem to come packaged with that software that just keeps spitting out no. The problem is we start growing up and we're sinners. And so we start saying no to the wrong things or to the right things and yes to the wrong things. We finally learn how to say yes and we start saying yes to sin and yes to disobedience and no to God. We get it flipped. But when the saving grace of God comes into our lives, it teaches us how to use those words properly. We we are born again by that grace, and in that new birth, we have to learn to speak again. We have to learn to speak the language of Zion, and we have to learn to speak to the right things with the right words. And so God's grace teaches us to say no to everything that's sinful, and yes to everything that's Godward. This is part of the fruit of the gospel teach us this distinction. But notice the third thing. Grace trains us to be upright. You see it there in verse 12? It's not really a third thing, but I'm naming it a third thing so I can sort of bring it out and zero in on it for the purposes of our topic. What does the gospel have to do with justice? Here's the answer. The grace of God, the root of salvation, trains us to do the works of God, the fruit of salvation. And one fruit of gospel grace is what Paul calls here in verse 12, uprightness. To be upright is to be internally righteous in thought, feeling, and desire, and externally righteous in speech and action. Another word for that would be integrity. You can use some other words, equity, righteousness, justness. An upright person is a, a principled person, honest honorable, ethical, decent, conscientious, good. 
That's what God is producing in us, beloved, through the gospel. It's making us who were sinners, good people, upright people, just people. So Titus 2 verse 14, look at the last phrase there. This is what God wants. He wants to purify for himself a people zealous for good works. So if you and I are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it should show itself in multiple ways. But one of those ways it should show itself is in uprightness or justness and the doing of good works that match that grace in our lives. So grace should make us that way or, or we're somehow blocking God's grace in our lives. We're in the way of his grace. So another thing to say here, people who say to us, stop talking about justice and just preach the gospel actually do violence to the gospel at this point. They are severing the fruit from the root. Uh, we can call them tuber Christians. We all know what tubers are, right? It's those plants that, uh, where the root system creates a, a larger bulb or a tube uh, that carries the nutrients of the plant. Uh, it's often the part of the plant that we eat. So think about potatoes. Potatoes are these big things beneath the ground, not flowers above the ground. And, and, and so what, what tuber Christianity does is say we're saved by grace and it just sort of bottles all of that, tubes it, and keeps it underground. And it cuts off the flower that is meant to bloom from that grace at the root. We don't want to be tuber Christians in that way. But also, we, we don't want to be bouquet Christians. We don't want to be Christians who sort of look at justice and say, justice is the thing. That's the flower. And we get all intoxicated with the, the color of the flower and the smell of the flower. But the problem with a bouquet is it doesn't have any roots. Sooner or later, it's going to die. It's not being constantly fed by gospel grace. And so it's, it's pretty for a minute, but you come home about a week later and it's drooping in the vase. This is why my wife don't want me to give her flowers. She'd be like, give me some kitchen utensils. <laughs> As you can tell, I happily buy them, you know. That's a blessing for everybody, right? <laughs> so, so we don't want to be tuber Christians or bouquet Christians. We, we want the whole plant. We want the gospel grace that's at the root, and we want the gospel grace that's manifested at the fruit. We want what God does to save us, to also train us to do and become uh, the, the sort of works and the good people that he wants for himself. And so we, we're after a vision of Christianity that's whole. We're after a vision of Christianity that's complete, that, that really does map itself over the entirety of the Bible. That takes seriously the whole counsel of God in proportion and in relation to all that God teaches. That, that's what we're sort of called to become as we are sanctified and grow as Christians. And don't let nobody turn you around. Don't let nobody convince you that if you care about doing right in the world, you're somehow doing something different from the gospel or, or something that's harmful to the gospel. You are, in fact, becoming, if you keep the gospel clear, you are becoming what God wants you to become. A purified people for himself, zealous for good works. That's the relationship between the gospel and justice. Justice is one of those good works. The gospel 
sort of creates in us or motivates us to do. Which brings us to our final question. What does this mean for each of us? Okay, Thabita, you've been working through the text a little bit and trying to theologically help us get our parts in the right place, grace at the root, fruit of justice and good works. You know, up here is the fruit. Uh, What does this all mean? Well, here's my short answer to that. It means every Christian must do good works, including good works of justice. This last phrase is important. In their own lane. Every Christian must do good works. It's it's part of why God has saved us. And we must do those good works, and those good works must include justice, but it also must be done in our own lane. I get that from Titus 2.14. I get that from Titus chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. I get that from Titus 3, verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I get that from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, where Paul makes it really clear. It's by grace you have been saved, not of works. He makes it really clear that this is a gift from God. And he tells us in verse 10 that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. And those works are inclusive of what we're calling biblical justice. So now, you might ask yourself the question, well, what are the good works that you and I should do personally? How do we go from the Bible's teaching to our living? What what justice concerns should be on our radar and should we be involved in? And how do we show this internal uprightness in external actions? of righteousness and justice. Well, I want to give us six things that are meant to be guides, six things to think through to arrive at your lane uh, and, and your sort of calling, if you will, in the pursuit of justice. Number one, we have to identify our attitude. We've got to identify our attitude. What do I mean by that? Well, I, I think we tend to think of good works almost entirely in terms of acts of mercy and compassion. And so we tend to think of good works in ways that leave us comfortable in our savior complex. Or we think of good works in ways that really allow us to approach this calling upon our lives at our convenience. So when we think about mercy, it's a wonderful thing for us to demonstrate and to show. And it is a close cousin to justice, but it's not the same thing. I love this quote from Ken, uh, from Ken Witzma in his book, Pursuing Justice. He's contrasting justice with charity or, or love and mercy. And he says this, justice, on the other hand, is something we wouldn't choose. And it does not usually occur on our terms. Justice makes strong demands. Therefore, however beneficial charity is, it is lacking if we stop short of justice in our immediate relationships and contexts. You see what he's saying? I think he's pointing, he's putting his finger on a problem with um, the sort of Christian witness in many respects. That Christian people are generous people and gracious people and merciful people. But the doing of mercy by itself leaves the doing of justice undone. And, And you can pour all kinds of mercy into the world 
and the world go right on being unjust. And so you need to actively pursue with both hands mercy and justice. Or here's how Augustine put it, lest you think I'm not being reformed enough. Here's what Augustine says. Charity is no substitute for justice withheld. You can't replace justice with charity. You got to do them both. God calls us to them both. And so if there's something in our attitude or our thinking that makes us go, well, I'll do all this mercy stuff, but I ain't getting involved in that justice stuff, I think we need to check that. If there's something in our attitude that allows us to go, um, you know, I, I don't feel good about justice or this is inconvenient. Well, I, it's actually part of the nature of justice. And I think we need to check that. Amen? Amen? Identify your attitude. Number two, identify your issues and learn. Now, when I say your issues here, I don't mean your baggage and stuff. I, I mean the topics you care about. And beloved, it's nice to think that we all care about or should care about all the same things to all the same extent and all be involved in, in exactly the same way. But that's never going to be the case. That ain't how the world works. And while we want a growing concern for all justice-related issues from a biblical perspective, not just our pet issues, we'll have to make some decisions about where to spend our energy and where to risk our chips. And if we're going to be upright, then we cannot do things half-informed. There's a great difference between speaking up about basic matters of right and wrong, for which we only need our conscience, on which God has written right and wrong, and speaking out very particularly about specific issues that require us to do some investigation and some study and some homework. So I don't, I don't need a lot of sort of evidence to be able to say to you and for you to be able to say to me that uh, a, a parent abusing their child is wrong. Period. Full stop. I don't need to know what happened. I don't need the background. I don't need your medical history. You're hurting the child. That's wrong. You're shooting an unarmed man in his grandmother's backyard while he's doing nothing. It's wrong. You, you're, you're turning a blind eye to children in schools being shot. It's wrong. It's wrong. And, and we don't need a law degree to say that that's wrong. But that's a different category than sort of trying to speak specifically about every police shooting, about which, we, for example, we don't have the facts. That's a different level of speech and a different level of investigation, a different level of, of interrogation that's necessary. And so we, 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 we need to learn the issues. We need to study the facts. We need to do some investigation. We need to do our homework. We need to get caught up on things. And I would suggest we spend some time thinking about issues that affect our mission in the neighborhood. At least our neighborhood and at least one issue beyond our neighborhood. And I'm suggesting that so that we don't, again, get locked into just our pet issues, but we are world Christians with a concern for people all around the world made in God's image and justice issues near and far. And this is one of the ways we can use the brothers and sisters in Christ here in the church. In this church are people with great passion and concern for a lot of different things. And, and we're not meant, I don't think, to come into the church and argue about which one of those things is going to get the most attention. We're meant to come into the church, iron sharpen iron, 
and help each other grow in our respective lanes and then collectively in understanding more of the world. You with me? So identify your issues and learn. Number three, identify your local lanes. So if you've driven around the beltway, you've noticed that in some areas of the, of the highway, you have what are called through lanes and you have what are called local lanes. Uh, the through lanes are there to help you keep it moving, right? You're not, you're not stepping in the city. You, you, you're going on about your business, right? The local lanes are, are to help you sort of get off the highway and into a neighborhood or onto a, a local street. And for many people, their approach to justice is almost entirely a through lane approach to justice. We know justice is over there in the city somewhere, but we're going on up this way. But what I think the Bible calls us to do is to get over in the exit lane, to get into some congestion, to make our way into a neighborhood, to put real faces and places onto this otherwise abstract concept of justice. Again, to quote Ken Whitsmith from his book, Pursuing Justice, he puts it so well, justice must be our concern everywhere, not just somewhere. It has to be a specificity to it. It has to be a, some local color to it. It has to be a, a face to it. And he goes on to quote, I love this, Eleanor Roosevelt, former first lady, a champion of, of human rights. She chaired the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. And she was asked this question, what after all, where after all do human rights begin? Now, no matter what you think about human rights, I think her answer helps us to think about biblical justice this is what she said. In small places, close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. Such are the places where every man, woman, and child seeks equal justice, equal opportunity, and equal dignity without discrimination. Unless these rights, or biblical justice, have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere. If you don't do justice at home, you ain't going to do it in the world. She's just, she's just bringing this all the way home for us. And so when we talk about your local lanes, think about how uprightness should show up in, in your sort of immediate life, in your home, in the way we treat each other as spouses, in the way we treat each other as parents and children in your uh, relationships with siblings or friends or roommates or people from your college campuses, in your job or career, through your local church. In this sense, all justice, like politics, is local, right? And, and we are indeed hypocrites if, if we are unjust in our homes and we're on the sort of bullhorn at the march downtown on some other issue. So husbands, what does uprightness look like in the care of your wives? Does it look like, woman, bring me a beer? Or does it look like, sweetie, how can I serve you today? Here, give me the baby. Let me bathe her tonight. I took your car to get it repaired and I addressed that man who seemed to be gouging you on the repair price. What does it look like for a husband to be just in his treatment of his wife at home? Or a wife to be just in her treatment of her husband? What's the, what are the words that are used? What are the actions that are taken? Or, or, or parents with our children. 
So much room to be unjust in the parent-child relationship. Parent has all the power, has all the ability, makes all the rules and enforces them in in whatever way they choose. So much room to, to actually be unfair to our children. So if you're a parent, when's the last time you apologized to your child for getting something wrong? You have gotten something wrong. When's the last time you rushed to judgment about your child's guilt to discover that even if they were guilty, you rushed to that judgment? And so the process of discovering their guilt and correcting them was actually an unjust process. When's the last time we apologized for that? When's the last time we've thought through our system of rewards and punishments as parents and whether or not they actually are fitting for the age of our child and fitting for the kinds of growth that we want to see in our children? Or are they really for our convenience? Remember how the writer of Hebrews puts it? He says, we've all had earthly fathers who chastise us for their convenience. But God chastises us that we might share in his righteousness. Does does our system of reward and punishments reflect God's system with us of when he corrects us, he does it, that we might participate in his righteousness? Or is it just so that things will be quiet so I can watch the game? So justice begins at home and how we treat our family members and our roommates and our visitors, and it begins in our workplace and the vocations that we choose. Identify your local lane. Number four, we need to identify then our responsibilities, authority, and influence. This has been implicit in what I've been saying, but I want to draw it out explicitly. So we need to think about our our authority as parents if we have children, or we need to think about our authority uh, if we're in the workplace and we are bosses who have people working for us. And and we need to think about if we're not those things, if we're the employee or or if we're the child, what, what responsibility do we have in that relationship? What authority do we have? In that relationship? What influence do we have in that relationship? I mean, you think about how do we use that well for the justice issue that's before us, which is really important for the next thing. We need to identify our strategy then. Because it is the case that we cannot do everything, as Baroness Cox put it, we cannot do everything, but we must not do nothing. That means then we've got to be strategic. We've got to have a strategy. We've got to think through. In, in given my lane and given my responsibilities, authority, and influence, what should and could I do that makes a difference in the world for promoting justice? Now here, the issue of Christian liberty and Christian conscience is critical. It's vital. Remind us of our statement of faith. The Second London Baptist Confession has a chapter on Christian liberty and Christian conscience. And paragraph two reads this. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. And the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. What does that mean? Well, it means that we cannot bind one another's consciences in this pursuit of justice to our preferred strategy 
if Christ in his word has not bound our conscience. So if Christ has not commanded a particular strategy, we're in the area of Christian liberty. Now, whatever the Bible commands explicitly, we're meant to do intentionally. But if Christ has not given us a specific command, we are by definition then experiencing the freedom that the Lord gives us in matters of conscience. And the error that we make in so many ways in everything from whether we go see the movies or, or whether or not we have a, a permissible glass of wine to, you know, how, how, whether women can wear jewelry. I mean, we've got a million ways in which the church gets this wrong. The error we make is somebody has a weak conscience. And by weak, I mean sensitive, the way the Bible uses it. The conscience is easily offended. And in that offense of conscience, they're often sort of requiring other people to think and act exactly the way they would, right? The other word for that is legalism. If it's what the Bible requires, then you're doing the right thing, weak or strong conscience. If it's not what the Bible requires, we got to be careful there. We got to be careful that we actually enjoy the the freedom that Christ gives. The the, the statement goes on to say this, if we believe the doctrines and commandments of men and, and obey such commands out of conscience, we betray true liberty of conscience. And notice, we, we destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. In other words, what I think that last phrase means when it says we destroy reason is we destroy the ability of Christians to think through complex things, to reason their way through these kinds of issues in ways that make sense in the world. Instead, what we do is say, you must think this, you must believe this, and we destroy reason and liberty in the process. Now, This all gets messy, but this is all part of why our original, one of our original goals for this series is that it promote unity among us and key to the unity that we are meant to sort of uh, enjoy is that we understand unity is not the same thing as uniformity. We're after unity, not uniformity. And for us to understand that, we've got to understand what the Bible teaches about conscience and liberty. And we've actually got to let people enjoy freedom of conscience and liberty. That will be promotive not only of unity and not only of freedom, but that will actually make us stronger in the pursuit of justice on many other fronts, not just one or two. You with me? All right. Amen means yes. (laughs) No man means no. (laughs) Last thing, number six, as we close. So we've got to identify number six, our allies. Who are we working together with for justice? Uh, Justice is a team sport. Uh, We're going to need to be able to do these things in solidarity with various others. We cannot do most of what we hope to do by ourselves. We just can't. Not if we actually have big ambitions for the Lord. We're going to need the rest of the church. And so we're going to need folks outside the church. Uh, We're going to even need non-Christians to partner with us on some things. We're going to need all people of good conscience and good faith to do good things promotive of justice, promotive of equity. So who will be your allies? That's a question for us to answer. So what we're trying to do in in this uh, sermon and what we're trying to do increasingly this year is to sort of teach and instruct from the Word in a way that gives us a biblical understanding of justice and in a way that helps us to apply these things and to grow in unity as a church. And part of what we want to do as pastors uh, and, and others of you, not just pastors, but, but you guys, all of us are meant to do the work of the ministry, is to create lanes for people to run in. 
That's how I want you to think about that basketball tournament next weekend. It's an opportunity for us to not just go play three-on-three if you're still in playing shape. (laughs) It's an opportunity for us to build relationships with police officers, community members, and to sort of do that slow work of relationship building, creating conversation, changing the frame. We pray in a biblical direction. Probably three years ago, I sat down for about two hours, three hours with a retired um, L.A. County sheriff. He was in California. He called me up, wanted to meet. He was angry about some things that I'd said. I was angry about some things that he said. We said, we brothers, we should probably sit down and say it to each other. So we did. And we started about this far apart. And over that two or three hours, we, we ended up like about this far apart. Right? Um, God gave us a lot of grace. But he said something in the midst of that back and forth that has, has stuck with me for, for about three years. He said this. He said, listen, he says a police officer, retired police officer, I try to minister to my, form, my fellow officers, and it's kind of hard. Oftentimes they don't want to hear what I have to say. And um, one of the reasons why is we sort of learned and observed that we never heard from pastors until they marched on the police station. And that thing convicted me. It still does. Because if I'm honest, that's me. You know, if I'm honest, much of my sort of response to police officers, except the brothers and sisters in the church whom I know and love, most of my response is, if they don't mess with me, I ain't messing with them. Right? I'm going on about my business. And when something goes wrong, I'm outspoken. And I think I should be. But that's not all that justice requires. Justice also requires that I love them. And loving them looks like showing up at the police station to pray for them, showing up at the three-on-three basketball tournament to play with them. It it looks like being a neighbor to them. And and I've been convicted of that failing in my own life. That's just me. I don't know about you. You might be good. But but when you think about these opportunities like the three-on-three basketball tournament, run through that list of six things. Is this a lane that I can run in? Is this a set of relationships I should build? Should I go there not just with the purpose of playing basketball, but with the slow work in mind of building relationships between our church and the community and police officers, relationships that will be redemptive and promotive of justice? Because here's the other thing I know about policing. Almost all the research that I'm aware of tells us that you get better out comes with community policing than you do with this militarized approach policing that we've seen in the last 30 years. So we ought to be about that. May 24th, write this date down please. May 24th, I think from like 10 to 2, we're partnering with another organization called Flourish Now. It's an organization that nationally basically does a couple things. They do uh, the kind of work that DC 127 does in in helping vulnerable families stay out of the foster care system. But they also uh, organize and host job fairs around the country. It's a Christian organization. They've reached out to us to ask if we would partner with them to host a job fair uh, on May 24th at the Dream Center. And, and what partnering with them means is some of us volunteering just to be hosts and hostesses at the job fair, to greet people when they come, strike up a casual conversation, and then be a kind of ambassador that introduces them to the employers um, that, that are there at the fair. They're going to have employers there that, that um, will hire folks without regard to their uh, sort of background, their criminal background and history. Um, they're going to do the footwork and organizing things, but they, they want Christians there to pray with people to minister to people, um, and, and to sort of hopefully get people connected to the gospel and the church. That's May 24. Come out for that. 
It's an opportunity for us to pursue a kind of economic justice, a kind of employment justice on, on the ground, helping people get jobs. Or April 7th, come out and walk a mile. It's just a mile. Come out and walk a mile on April 7th from the Anacostia Park to the Dream Center for Walk a Mile in My Shoes. It's Second Chance Month. It's Prison Fellowship's effort to sort of put on the agenda in the country a sort of increased awareness of what it takes for people to leave incarceration and successfully reintegrate back into the community. And what it takes is community. It takes a lot of people around them, helping them sort of get resources, get connected to work, uh, get clothing, uh, to have some friendships unlike the friendships that led them to incarceration. And we're going to be hearing the testimonies of persons who are coming out of that system and trying to get back into the community. And there'll be a fair there of, of gently used clothing given to folks and other resources given to folks. We, we've got a table there. Let's man that table. Um, some of y'all got a lot of nice clothes you don't wear no more because that was three sizes ago. Bring those clothes on out. I ain't trying to take your dreams of getting smaller from you. I'm just saying when you, when you, when you get smaller, buy new clothes. Bring those, bring those other clothes out. Let's, let's, let's donate them. Some of you brothers got like 12 pair of sneakers. You're like a Milda Marcos with sneakers, man. Bring out some of those sneakers, gently worn. Not the funky ones, the gently worn ones. You still got the box for them. Let's provide some resources, but more than that, let's provide some relationship. Let's provide some encouragement that we might be learning in our lanes to do those good works the gospel is meant to produce in us. You guys with me? It's the basic point of the sermon. Justice is not something contrary to the gospel. Justice is the fruit the gospel produces in the Christian life. And we all need to sort of mark our lanes and run in them with the zeal and the joy and the faith that God gives us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word and what you call us to in your word, to image forth your son and to do good, O Lord, good things that are profitable for everyone. And Lord, you tell us in the word that we should insist on these things, that we would be eager to do good. And I praise you that you've made us that kind of church. All kinds of people here, eager to do good, doing good in their vocations, doing good in their homes, and doing good in the community, and wanting to do more so. Give us grace, O Lord. Give us grace to care about everything we should care about. Give us grace to express that care in words. Give us grace to express that care in action. Give us grace, O Lord, to ally together, to partner together, to do more together than we would be able to do apart. And help us to do this, Lord, not for our namesake, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name be the glory, O Lord. Bring yourself praise through the ministry of this church, through the service of this people, through the, through the actions of, of every member in this church. Help us to do that, O oh Lord, for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.